You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, David. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I am doing okay, and I'm delighted to be with you today. Well, I'm delighted to have you. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are David Livingston Smith, a professor of philosophy at the University of New England in Maine, although at the moment, apparently, you're in New Hampshire. Correct. Which has certain sales tax advantages, I guess, or does Maine also have no sales tax? No, Maine has sales tax. Okay. People drive down to New Hampshire to buy so you do stuff. Your, you do your buying on the New Hampshire side and your teaching on the Maine side. Wise, exactly. Wise man. Um, so anyway, we're going to talk about a book you've written called On Inhumanity, Dehumanization and How to Resist It, published by Oxford University Press. Um, you wrote an earlier book called Less Than Human, Why We Demean, Enslave and Exterminate Others. So uh, our mistreatment of one another seems to be a, a persistent interest of yours. Um, now, uh, the, so, so dehumanization, let me, let me see if I, um, understand, uh, kind of the source of your interest in the subject. So the idea is that dehumanization is kind of a, a psychological maneuver that is sometimes used to justify our, our bad treatment of one another, including very bad treatment like, uh, torture, murder, rape, genocide. So sometimes at least dehumanization, uh, plays a role. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes that's very important because a lot of people get me wrong. They think I say that humanization is necessary for the commission of atrocities. And I would never say anything that stupid. Uh, yeah. So I mean, it's a good place to start with what dehumanization is supposed to be because the word is used in many, many different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, in the scholarly literature, it's used in eight or 10 different ways. And then if you go to the you know common vernacular, it's used in a gazillion different ways. So talking about dehumanization is tricky unless you're prepared to specify what you mean. And you described right there what I take to be the function of dehumanization, which and, is. And can, I, can I interrupt you? Yeah, do you mean, do you mean, sure. do you mean function in the sense that this is a built in mechanism? So, I mean, if I, if I talk about like the function of, of thirst as a psychological phenomenon, I would think of that as the function as being to get me to drink, uh, beverages, which keep me alive. And I would think that that's built in by natural selection. Do you mean function in, in that sense actually engineered into us? No, no, I don't. Okay. Uh, one time I was um, attracted to that idea. I don't think, I don't think so. I think that dehumanization is typically prompted by external influences, by propaganda, by ideology that exploit vulnerabilities in the human mind. Now, whether those vulnerabilities are in any sense innate, I don't know. That's a matter of some speculation. But dehumanization doesn't sort of arise from within. It comes from without. But it's a capacity to say the least. I, I, I mean, I mean, there's something kind of well developed in the human brain that the propagandists are playing on, I guess is what I'm. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So one of the things that makes the study of dehumanization, the proper study of it challenging is because it lies on that interface between the psychological and the social stroke political, right? So, yeah, there's got to be something <laughs> in the human brain for anything to have an effect on human behavior, mm -hmm. right? And this sort of rhetoric and propaganda and ideology certainly does have effects on human behavior. I think it's important right out because we started on that. Uh, let me clarify function, and then let me take a step back and say exactly what I mean by dehumanization. Okay. So there are all sorts of things that have functions. Washing machines have functions, to use my you know favorite example. And by function, I mean there's something that they're for. Um, and I, I think that dehumanization is a kind of a a a, a gimmick, a kind of form of self-engineering that human beings have developed over time to overcome inhibitions against 
doing terrible things to conspecifics. Okay. So that's its function. Its function is to selectively disable uh, inhibitions. Let's use the term violence, broadly violence. Inhibitions the inhibition against, uh, against violence. So yes. we, by nature, are not inclined to just walk up and kill people. We're a social species, but you think that you think for that reason, it takes some kind of override uh, mechanism in a sense. Yeah, and it's not the only one. So, like you said, we're we're not only a social species; we're hypersocial species, right? We are intensely, incomparably social, and any social species has to have these inhibitions. I mean, we can't maintain a social way of life while being at each other's throats. But we also have these great big brains and can think in terms of means and ends, and can think, well, you know, it would be pretty advantageous to wipe out our neighbors and enslave them, steal their stuff, and so on. Mm -hmm. And so over time, uh, our ancestors developed various means of overriding these these inhibitions, the use of intoxicants, for instance, mind-altering rituals, religious ideologies, all kinds of things. And dehumanization is, is one of those. Okay. So uh, let me, let me just throw something in, um, to, uh, um, to kind of maybe foreshadow a direction the conversation will eventually take is, is I know there's, you know, there, there's a disagreement over the question of the role dehumanization plays. And, 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 um, and I know that Paul Bloom, who has been on this show, has had, uh, has had criticisms of your worldview. Uh, I actually am not well versed in his criticisms. On the other hand, I like him in sympath- am sympathetic to evolutionary psychology. So I think I can maybe imagine some. So anyway, I'll, I'll, uh, as, as, as the conversation goes on, I'll try to serve as a proxy for Paul without having any idea as to whether I'm actually doing a good job. I okay, haven't. Good luck. But, but, but anyway, the, the, I'll, I'll ask you some of the natural, I'll raise some of the natural doubts that, that, mm-hmm. uh, that might arise to, to um to someone but why why don't we or at least to someone of a of a kind of a darwinian persuasion but why don't we um uh go ahead and flesh out the the idea a little um okay a little more so okay. dehumanization could mean a number of things as you suggested i think to most people it means well to a lot of people things it means thinking of people as literally subhuman like I think of you as a, as a rat, and you see this in pro, in propaganda. You see posters, you know, if you look at the way Jews were depicted in Germany at mid twentieth century. Correct. Um, and um, so one one meaning of it is you you think of them as just literally uh, less than human, assuming you arrange your species in a hierarchy, and mm-hmm. um, and for that reason not worthy of the treatment we normally accord our fellow human beings, and since obviously uh, humans uh, do kill a lot of non-human animals routinely, that would seem to to be enough to uh, allow you to kill them without getting in, into any trouble, uh, or, or at least um, without thinking it's a huge moral crime. So, so that's one way of thinking of what dehumanization means. What 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 is? Uh, that's that's how, close. How are you thinking of it? That's yeah. very close to mine. Uh, okay. Uh, so, uh, and it's I. I think it's substantially correct. It's just a little bit oversimplified. So if we, if we look at, uh, the Nazis, for instance, their attitudes towards Jews, they certainly did think of them as subhumans and they very often conceived of them as subhumans similar to rats. But obviously, uh, Jewish people are not little brown rodents with bare tails scurrying about. So there, there is uh, an additional complexity to dehumanization. Now, perhaps this is jumping the gun of the conversation uh, too, too radically. But what I think happens in the dehumanization is twofold. On the one hand, the dehumanizer does indeed think of the other as less than human. I mean that quite literally as a subhuman creature. And we can get into what that means. But on the other hand, they can't fully shake their recognition of the humanness of the, of the persons that they dehumanize. So they're left with sort of an in, incoherent picture, wholly subhuman and wholly human. And I think that tension is very important for understanding the phenomenology 
of dehumanization. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let me, um, at, at this point, actually interject something, a question that might arise from a kind of evolutionary psychology point of view. Um, I mean, for, from a, from a Darwinian point of view, you might imagine that there, there, throughout human evolution, uh, there have been times when it was in the interest of a, a person's gene, so to speak. In other words, doing this might increase the chances that the genes get in the next generation to exploit, take advantage of, mistreat fellow human beings in various ways. So, sure. so the first, so on the one hand, uh, you might think there, are, there definitely are psychological mechanisms that justify it because Clearly, a strong tendency uh, in human in human psychology seems to be to keep convincing ourselves that we're in the right. That seems to be important to us. Evolutionary psychologists think that that's in some sense uh, built in, too. And so you, you would need mechanisms, you know, kind of consistent with your view. You would you would need uh, a mechanism to justify uh, the, the bad treatment of other people because you want to think of yourself as a good person. And I guess the, a question would arise, well, but why would that have to involve actually thinking of them as subhuman? And in fact, if you look at a common, uh, justification for mistreating people, uh, it, it, it depends critically on thinking of them as human in the sense that a very common justification is they did something bad. They, they did something horrible and implied in that is, uh, they had the option of doing other, otherwise. In other words, they have volition, which is something we attribute to human beings. Yeah. And so it's often, um, uh, 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 an evaluation of the other person that, dep- that is fundamentally centered on their humanness in a certain sense. And the mechanism, the, the, the trick, it seems to me, is often in the way you're weighing the evidence, right? In, in the way you're concluding that what they did was wrong and what you did was right, right? I mean, we, we, we know more and more about cognitive biases of various kinds, including the kind that influence our moral evaluations. So I think a common, a common kind of evolutionary psychology approach might be to look at it that way, that, that there definitely are mechanisms built into us, uh, that justify mistreating people, but some of them at least seem to depend on thinking of the other people as people, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So we don't need, um, particularly, um, evolutionary psychology to have that conversation, which is a good thing because I'm, I've become over the years somewhat skeptical good. of a great deal of evolutionary good. psychology. I say good, not because I think you're heading toward the light, but because I think that'll <laughs> make this a livelier conversation. <laughs> good. Okay. So, um, yeah, and that's perfectly consistent with my picture. So dehumanization is a motivated state of mind. I mean, the point is that conceiving of others as not only less than human, but dangerously less than human, because dehumanization both releases inhibitions and it also motivates, right? Rats are for extermination. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a, is a way of, um, of greasing the, the, the wheels of aggression, which might meet the, uh, the inhibitions that I referred to earlier. So it, it begins. Yeah. There's another person I don't like. Uh, so, you know, some people think of dehumanization as like a failure to see someone as a human. It's not a failure. It's not like some kind of oversight. Mm-hmm. It's, it has the, the function of getting beyond the obstacles that that recognition can throw up for us. And I don't see these obstacles, by the way, as moral, moral reservations. Um, I, I see them as pre-moral, just inhibitions. There's something about looking into another person's face that elicits a certain kind of reaction, which is inconvenient if you want to do serious harm to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's, that's one bit of it. But if we actually look at examples of dehumanization, dehumanized people, there is, I would say virtually always, an implicit or explicit recognition of their humanness at the same time they're being dehumanized. And one way that that shows is the reproach that they deserve it. They're, right. well, typically they're evil, right? They're evil in the most extreme forms. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so if we, if we take 
the role of dehumanization and genocide, which you find in certainly every genocide that I've studied, uh, genocides are really moralistic. You know, they're, they're geared towards ridding the world of evil. Right. And I think that comes from the thing I mentioned earlier, that when we dehumanize others in response largely to what we're told, so the Nazi race expert gets up and says, well, you know, those Jews, they look human, but they're not human. They're, they're untermenschen. Uh, and they're the authorities. It literally means subhuman? Subhuman, yeah. Mm-hmm. They're the authorities, so you know, we take it on board for German, loyal German citizens. We take that on board, but at the same time, we cannot shake our perception of these, especially up close and personal, as human beings. So it's that odd combination of representing the other in one part of the mind as subhuman and representing them in another part of the mind as human, which creates this distinctive tension. And we can see this in the language of dehumanization. What you typically find is people sort of cycling back and forth between referring to the other as human and referring to them as subhuman, sort of a duck-rabbit situation. Okay. So um, let's see where to go from here. Well, one question is, uh, I assume you, like the rest of us, have occasionally had revenge fantasies. <laughs> yes. So what, what, how would you say you're thinking of the person when you're having, and, and I mean, they can range from actually wanting violence to befall a person, I guess, to maybe more commonly, I, I hope, uh, you know, some other misfortune that makes yes. them suffer, but is is not lethal. Um, yes. uh, but what kind of shift, how are you thinking of the, if it's possible to characterize how you're thinking of the person in your typical revenge fantasy? Oh, it's it's somewhat cartoonish, actually, when I have a revenge fantasy. I imagine some um, misfortune befalling them. Mm-hmm. And I... Or, or some fabulous success that I'm experiencing, right. which causes them to or be Or you're envied. the one who has the, does the brilliant riposte that humiliates them and ruins their career. Yeah. One, my, my personal favorite. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, thank you. Uh, but, but, so, but, but, but how are you, th- but how are you thinking of the person leaving aside the revenge? Um, you know, well. I, yeah, I'm, I'm not really. Right, this is going to sound a little bit misleading, but maybe I can clarify. I'm not really thinking of them as a person, in other okay, words, that, as, that, that, as a subject with hopes and fears and so on. That's what I meant when I said it's kind of cartoonish. Okay. It's kind of flat. So you would say it begins there. So you would say if you're hoping that some good fortune will befall someone, maybe they've done something nice to you or something laudable, then you're thinking of them as a full-fledged person, whereas if you're having a revenge fantasy, you're not quite. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think, I think that's probably correct. I think that, you know, that's, that's probably a good approximation of my mental states. Okay. So you've evaded that, uh, that line of attack. What I was going to say was to me, it <laughs> seems like, when I, you know, the people I, that I, you know, if I have like an enemy, yeah, I, I I just kind of think I'm thinking of them as people, and you know, in a certain sense, the revenge fantasy depends on thinking them as of them as very much like you, because what's going to make them suffer is something that would make you suffer, right? It's like humiliation. Sure. It's like a classically human yeah. Um, thing. Yeah, yeah. So, so look, I have actually, I I didn't realize um, what you were getting at a moment ago. So let let me uh, un. Evade. Okay. No, I, I think in both cases, I think of them as people. It's just that when I'm having a revenge fantasy, it's a kind of more simplistic, less rich uh, picture of them. It's cartoonish. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not dehumanizing them mm-hmm. in that, that state at all. Yeah. So in so my sense not, of dehumanizing. And you're not objectifying them in the most literal, straightforward sense. In other words, imagining that all. it won't hurt them, you know, that they're Not just a material object. So maybe it'd be good to talk about um, kind of essentialism and, and the perception of essence, because I know, excuse me, this, this figures into almost any good account 
of a mechanism that justifies uh, mistreatment of people. And it certainly, I think, figures into yours. So you're Very seeing so. us as having a natural tendency to kind of perceive essence in things or do attribute yes. essence to things. Yeah. So I draw on the psychological literature that was formally kicked up, kicked off by Medden and Ortoni. 1989, in their paper, Psychological Essentialism. And there's a very extensive and robust psychological literature on this. So basically, the idea is this, that we human beings have a disposition to, first of all, divide the world up into what philosophers call natural kinds that are kinds of things like biological species, which are supposed to be independent of our classificatory practices, now think of the periodic table of the elements. That's the paradigmatic example of natural kinds. And to understand kind membership as fixed by the possession of an essence. And an essence would be an unobservable something in some sense inside the thing mm -hmm. that makes any individual a member of that kind and which is causally responsible for their observable properties. So an inner dogginess is what makes dogs dogs. Mm -hmm. Inner humanness, historically associated with the idea of the human soul, uh, is what makes human beings human beings, and so on and so forth. And that's a really, really important idea for understanding dehumanization, because as soon as you start thinking about dehumanization, you're confronted with a puzzle. And the puzzle is, how can someone look at another member of our species who in every significant respect is indistinguishable from those that they would consider human beings <laughs> and consider them subhuman, mm -hmm. right? And so psychological essentialism helps us with that because it's, it is consistent with the idea that the appearance may be lie the essence, that one could be um, a counterfeit human being, a human-looking being with a subhuman essence. And this is an idea we pick up really, really easily. I mean, a lot of, say, horror fiction depends on this idea that, you know, the vampire looks like a person, but they're inside, they're radically different. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's that's one of the... It's like an essentialism is essential for understanding dehumanization. Otherwise, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, there's a psychologist, I think a psychologist, who's done interesting experiments. Is it Susan, um, is it Gelman, Gelman, something like Gelman, that? Yeah. Gelman, yeah, Susan Gelman. Yeah. Where she actually takes kids, I, and I forget exactly what she does, but she like, does she take like stuffed animals and start changing parts of them? Or maybe she just asks the kids what, uh, but but anyway, she, there are a she, number of experiments with with kids, right? Where they take, say, a a classic one is a uh, the kid is shown a picture of a porcupine, mm -hmm. which is then the child is shown that it's it's it undergoes surgery and it's morphed into the form of a cactus, mm -hmm. and then the child is asked, "Well, is it a cactus or is it a porcupine?" And the child says, "It's a porcupine." Mm -hmm. So the appearance is not significant. When right. you ask the child, well, why is it a porcupine? They say, well, it's made out of porcupine. In other words, there's something in hearing mm -hmm. in the porcupine which makes anything uh, made out of that thing a member of that kind. Mm -hmm. Something inside it. Inside it, irrespective of its appearance. Yes. So now, in your view is... I mean, when we perceive essence, is that, that has kind of an affective dimension, right? I mean, it's to some extent a feeling when you, uh, I mean, let me, okay, you're, you're, you let, let the record show for people who are listening to this in audio podcast that you're not, you're not nodding your head vigorously. I'm you're actually, skeptically. you're skeptically I'm, pondering I'm, the question. Yes. Um, maybe, uh, well, here's, I guess here's, uh, one way of asking the question that maybe opens up a couple of avenues. One is, okay. one thing we do is essentialized groups, right? And this is, uh, this can facilitate massive atrocity. Uh, yeah. but, but, um, so for example, I think there are a lot of people right now who, if you say to them the phrase Trump voters or Trump supporters, 
they have an idea of a set of properties that actually can't possibly apply to all of them. The, probably the only single thing that actually applies to all of them is that they voted for Trump, right? And yeah. and and yet, I think a lot of people would think immediately they're racist, they're bigoted, or whatever. And it seems to me that accompanying that perception is a feeling. It's a negative feeling. And yeah. and similarly, um, well, let me let me stop there and just get your reaction. Yeah, to sometimes that. yes, sometimes no. So people. Uh, essentialize all sorts of uh, social groups. And uh, sometimes, well, uh, racism is the paradigmatic example. Sometimes this is ne- definitely negatively toned. Uh, the, uh, but say, essentializing, I don't know, Italians isn't necessarily negatively toned. Especially not if you're Italian. Yeah. Um, so, uh, okay. I guess what I was getting at is, is it, it seems to me, and I, and I should say, um, getting kind of, you know, seriously into mindfulness meditation, I'm not very good at it or well-equipped to do it, but, Mm. but, but putting myself in situations where I had no alternative, but to do a lot of it Mm. has kind of influenced uh, my view in the sense of, of, of making me more attentive to the way I am affectively reacting to the various things. Yeah. And I kind of noticed that, I mean, kind of each individual, I mean, you're right that kinds like, uh, well, like, like a calf, a cow, mm-hmm. a deer, th- mm-hmm. there is, there's an affectively toned reaction because for one thing, you've, you've got to decide, is it threatening or not? So there's a kind of a positive negative dimension. Yeah. yeah I, and, mm-hmm. and, and then there's a lot of other things that go into it. Is it cuddly? Is it this? Is it that? And what I want to say is, um, with people, I noticed I attribute a different essence to every person. It's like if it's an old friend, there's kind of essence of old friend and there are different, different kinds of old friends. There, there are, and I guess it seems to me that if you look at how you treat different people ranging from very warmly to, eh, with some detachment to not very nicely to very, very badly, you could just see it as a continuum, a spectrum of, of kind of perceptions of essence that involve. And as you move along the spectrum, there's a clear affective dimension, more and more negative as you move toward people you would like want to kill or something. But yeah. I, I guess, yeah. and of course, consistent with it, with my Darwinian perspective, I think that a lot of that's engineered into us because it, it makes sense. Uh, from the point of view of the genes, you treat different people differently. You, 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 you do favors for people who you, who are going to do them to you and, and so on, you know, and, and that is effectively yes, yeah. different and so on. So there's, there's a kind of, dis, uh, I won't say a debate, uh, but a, a disagreement in the, the essentialism literature on whether or not essence is applied to individuals. Essence is in this particular sense, right? So I think you're using the term essence way more broadly than, than mm-hmm. I am here. So essence of old friend. Well, old friend isn't a isn't a natural kind. It's eh, that's it's, where we differ. But go you, ahead. Well, <laughs> you wouldn't you wouldn't uh, you can have old friends in different ways. Let's sure. Put it, well, right? but there are different they, kinds of dogs, you know. There yeah. are different kinds of deer. There, you know. But but anyway. Sure. But that's why I get stuck on this. Okay. Okay. So um, yeah, there's kind of debate in the literature. Um, or attention in the literature on the question of whether we attribute essences to individuals or uh, essences imp- apply only to two kinds. I don't know where I want to come down on that. So I'm, I'm mm-hmm. honestly agnostic. Okay. On that. But essences are never perceived. This is what I wanted to come back on. So e- unobservability is a is a property of essences in this sense of essence. Well, you, you mean that you mean the essence per se can by definition not be seen kind of. Exactly. So it's, which isn't the same as saying there's no perception accompanying your, your kind of inference of of, it. I mean, no, no. Yes. You you do react differently to people to whom you attribute or or to things to which you attribute different essence. And that involves a kind of perception. Yeah, so there, okay. that happens in two different ways. One way is that a thing's observable properties, at least the properties that are typical of the kind, 
are taken to be symptomatic of the S. And so, you know, if we see something that looks like a porcupine, we figure it's a porcupine, right? Mm-hmm. Just as, you know, if you've got a sore throat and you're, you're sneezing, you can infer from that that you're infected with a rhinovirus. Um, and the other, of course, is when an expert tells you that despite how something looks, it's really something else instead. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that's most pertinent to uh, dehumanization. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, let me ask you another question that's both about the contemporary political situation and about this question of kind of spectrum spectrum of, of perceptions of different people versus something a little more dichotomous. I mean, I mean, you'll agree that, mm-hmm. that I mean, dehumanization, I'm not imagining it as sounding a little I, I'm not wrong in thinking of it as a little binary, right? I mean, it's like, it sounds like yeah. there's, there's the category in which I'm putting most people and then it's almost like flipping a switch. Absolutely. And okay. that's, that's, that connects with the essentialism, right? Because essences are binary. You don't, you can't have a little bit of one. You yeah. either have it or you don't. Yeah. Although I guess what I'm, one thing I'm saying is if you, if you, I guess what I'm saying is if you look at the, the, you know, your, the, the, the kind of subjective apprehensions you have in, in reaction to pe- people to whom you might attribute different essences. Let's take the dichotomous cases. Mm-hmm. Th- this guy I want to kill. This person I want to, uh, you know, be lifelong friends with. I guess, you know, I, I guess we agree uh, looking at them feels differently. And what I'm suggesting is that, uh, there are people in intermediate ranges and if you if you if you move from one to the other there's actually a, a gradation of feelings and and so it's the I, I now i certainly agree that you know that you have to make a decision like do you fight or do you do you assault someone or not that that's in some sense binary but but um yeah okay but right so that's true uh but there are lots of forms of uh derogation that fall well short of dehumanization. In fact, I think that dehumanization usually has a precursor in racialization. So a group of people who's dehumanized, they're first treated as lower on the human hierarchy. They're, you know, they're seen as intrinsically uh, inferior human beings by nature. Dehumanization is, well, I like to call it racism and steroids. It just takes that further. It, it excludes them from the category of the human. Mm-hmm. So there is this whole spectrum of, of denigration with various degrees of contempt and dislike mm-hmm. and, and so on prior to getting to the point where that flip is made and the other is ejected from the category of the human. By the way, you got Paul Bloom's worries down pretty well. Is this pretty on. much what he says? Yes. He, I mean, he's, he kind of takes an intermediate position. So he's in between me and Kate Mann. Kate Mann is an out and out skeptic for, for the reasons that you articulated. Mm-hmm. Paul thinks, yeah, dehumanization is a thing, but it's very often the case that our hostilities to others are motivated precisely by our recognition of them as human beings and our use of animalistic slurs like you pig or something like that mm-hmm. uh, only makes sense in the context of realizing that they're human beings and realizing that they regard themselves as human beings. Mm-hmm. That's what makes it humiliating for them. Right. That, right. The idea. Yeah. Right. Okay. And so I don't Kate, discount any of that. So Kate Mann is a complete skeptic. I've, I've actually had her on the show, but I was talking about specifically about her book. Uh, I think it's called Down Boy. Is it? Down Girl. Down Girl. Right. Okay. So that's interesting because the title suggests dehumanization, right? I mean, Down Girl is down is a uh, usually it's a dog. That's a, the second word in that, right? Down, right. down boy yes. Yes. is applied to dogs, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so I'm a little, uh, so, but she has a chapter on dehumanization. Okay. In there, so, okay. Yeah. It's been a while. Um, so, okay. Um, but she's, so she's not, uh, now, now there, there presumably are some, uh, feminists, uh, who, 
who are on your side or is, or is it? A- oh yeah. Yeah. No, there's a, there are a spectrum of views. Uh-huh. So yes, there are, um, there are feminist philosophers who are certainly on my side. Okay. And there's some who are on Kate's side in this. Okay. So to get back to, um, the, uh, the current political situation. So it's famously polarized. In fact, we're at a moment where I think a number of people feel things, you know, I've heard people say they feel things are slipping out of control. Uh, uh, some calamities have coincided mm-hmm. in an unfortunate way, including, of course, the pandemic. And, um, the, uh, you know, so, and I say that because this probably won't, you know, may not run for a couple of weeks or something. So who knows where the country will be by then? Yeah. But there are people who, who think right now that we're at a point where it could be in a much worse place. Like, you know, uh, I, I just this morning on social media, I saw uh, a guy, um, a guy who owns a mansion in St. Louis and his wife holding guns. I don't know if you saw this. He had like an uh, assault rifle. She had a pistol. Apparently yeah, they live in a gated yeah, community yeah. and some, and some uh, Black Lives Matter protesters had uh, violated the perimeter in their view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they weren't on his property, but they were, it was all private property, I guess. Anyway, um, that's a little alarming. And, um, you know, so there are people who uh, they're now starting to talk seriously about civil war. Chances are it won't happen, but mm-hmm. a lot of people think it's no longer beyond the pale. How would you, uh, I guess my question is, I'm sure you've seen civil wars where things, uh, got to a point where you would say dehumanization was playing a big role. Would you say that right now, as you see the psychology of polarization, which is to say some people kind of hating what they think of as Trump supporters, some Trump supporters hating what they think of as, say, cosmopolitan elites or whatever, the, however they define the group. Do you see the concept of dehumanization or, I mean, the phenomenon of dehumanization already entering the process? To some extent, yes. But um, it's certainly certainly on the extreme right dehumanization has entered the process but dehumanization is always around on the extreme right i think we certainly have incipient dehumanization that the way the this polarization uh involves essentializing the others uh and this is going to sound really really weird but it it's close to racialization. So, see, what I think happens in racialization is simply that uh, a some group of people with whom one has conflict of one sort or another, or with whom one wishes to um, oppress, is regarded as essentially inferior. Um, irredeemably different. Mm-hmm. And that difference is transmitted by dissent. And certainly I think we're getting there with respect to these political groupings. Yeah. No, that's a precursor. That's uh, no, a, I mean, uh, you said it might sound weird to compare it to racialization. It doesn't seem weird at all. I mean, I think, you know, in both cases you're attributing essence to a group. Yeah. Uh, and it's a negative essence. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. And they're um, irredeemable because it's an essence. Right. Now, now are there, uh, kind of prescriptions, uh, that grow out of your worldview as they apply to this <laughs> current situation? In other words, can you, um, if you can solve the problem, I, I'm willing to, to write your name in, uh, on the ballot in, in November, but, um, are, are there, uh, you're shaking your head in despair. Uh, you know, for too long, important things have been unattended to in this country. So unlike other nations, I mean, nations tend to be born in violence and, and commit atrocities. It's just a fact. But we've never been brought to our knees for hours. So... By that you mean? I what? By that I mean. Well, the the original original sin was the genocide of Native Americans, mm. but the the second original sin was not only not only the enslavement of Africans, 
but their re-enslavement after the Civil War through sharecropping, through convict leasing, through Jim Crow. I don't like to use the word Jim Crow because a lot of Americans really don't understand what it was and how unbelievably, gruesomely violent uh, the treatment of black Americans was. Well, this, and this is well, well, well into the 20th century. So this, these things haven't been attended to. And I know that I teach this stuff. I teach, you know, undergraduates in the liberal arts university, and they have no idea. They have no idea of the racial history of the United States. That's surprising because, I mean, is your, is your, uh, your university is just low on social justice warriors or, or are the social, the, the so-called social justice warriors, um, if we can use a label that some of them may not like, um, actually not that well versed in the history of, of the grievances that, that they themselves, uh, emphasize. Well, I don't know. I'm, I've been called a social justice warrior, so I'm kind of loyal to the Congratulations. <laughs> Few in your generation uh, have attained that rank. Yes, yes, yes. I've been reproached for that, along with death threats and things like that. Really? You've gotten death yeah. threats? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the one thing I wrote that gave me, got me death threats was, um, a critique of Jordan Peterson, which his followers didn't take kindly to, at least well, some of them. You know, didn't he sue Kate Mann? He threatened to. He threatened to sue Kate. It, it was it was an idle threat. Um, so who? So so his supporters uh, emailed. Yeah, you I got the, I got the you know the the emails about what, what had you said about him? Uh, all sorts of unflattering things that he uh, you know he he ostensibly stands up for the individual, but creates a cult following. That, that he's, he's enmeshed in performative contradiction mm-hmm. in that respect. Stuff like that. Yeah. Um, now he's, he's, uh, fallen on hard times, as you may know. Um, yeah, he has. And, uh, yes, I'm not sure yeah, what yeah. his status is, but it sounds. Well, his daughter seems to have taken over the operation as far as I can see. Yeah. And it's unclear what his uh, status is. I guess, I mean, he, he, um, uh, he had some pretty extreme treatment for, uh, I guess, I don't know, initially anxiety or something. I don't know what it was, but it's a, it's a little bit of a mystery. Well, yeah, he was, he was addicted to, um, to an anti-anxiety drug. One of the, um, that's right. I forget. The, yeah. It's, it's a benzo. Yeah. It's a benzo. Yeah. Yeah. And so the story is, and it's a bizarre story. He went, he went off to Russia to get detoxed because they would basically put him into a coma. Mm-hmm. And the story is he emerged a wreck. So, so I don't know. as could happen if you're in, you know, put into a coma, I guess. Yeah, maybe he'll rise from the dead, which would be. <laughs> now it sounds <laughs> to me like it sounds to me like maybe your empathy for him has not grown as, as a result of his misfortune, which is a genuinely interesting thing, relevant no, to our, our, our subject, right? I mean, it is. I, I mean. You tell me. Uh, it certainly happens that, I mean, look, it, it, you must have had, it would be hard for you to write these things about him, get death threats, without feeling some ill will at some points, right? That would be only human. Oh, yeah, I think he's a very destructive person. So, uh, yeah, uh, I guess that counts as ill will. You can imagine holding that view in a totally detached way. But I guess my question is then when you hear about someone's misfortune, it can eat into that sense of ill will, right? I'm not sure, sure it has in this. No, case, yeah, of course right? it can. And and uh, uh, I think I can talk lightly in this sort of way, but it, huh. if I thought seriously about this man and how he's suffering, I, I would not I would not want him to suffer. Um, now that's uh, this is a question I hadn't intended to ask, but do you think anyone deserves to suffer? Because, as I said, I mean, certainly a common psychological mechanism for just, justifying this treatment is to convince yourself that people deserve to suffer. No, I don't. I, I, I'm very skeptical of the whole idea of people deserving anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people do what they do. And mm-hmm. I'm a determinist. You know, people there do what go. they do because of the forces acting on them. And I can't see how any really robust notion of desert is compatible with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 
do I have those feelings? Yeah, of course I do. Mm-hmm. I, that some people deserve punishment and some people deserve praise and so on and so forth. So I don't, I don't remember how we got on to. Well, it, uh, we can probably trace our way back, but first one related question. You've looked at a number of cases of like mass violence, genocides and so on. Is it a universal feature of them that the, the claim is they deserve to suffer? In other words, you, you can imagine such as an extreme form of dehumanization that that wouldn't be necessary. You just say, well, they're like cockroaches. Who cares what you do to cockroaches? Yeah, but that, but it, it's never that doesn't that, happen. Right? That doesn't right. happen because, because, and here I will go evolutionary psychology on you, one of mm-hmm. the few little bits, because we are built to respond to one another as human beings. And we can't shake that. I think that's modular. It's bang. You look into another person's eyes, you cannot help seeing human. No matter how ideologically convinced you are that they're, they're less than human. So I'm reluctant to say anything is universal when it comes to human beings or other forms of life. Uh, but here I would say every case that I've studied, there is this notion of the persecuted group being evil and therefore deserving the treatment that they're getting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, certainly you would, you would say that part of the story that's worth examining is the question of how we make our evaluations of moral responsibility, how we conclude that, that, you know, uh, the other person is, is, uh, guilty of something egregious and we're not, which tends to be the way we. Yeah. So th- there's a, there's a kind of dimension here that we haven't touched on yet. Uh, and I, I need to kind of rewind a bit and then move forward to it. So essentialism is one bit of, of dehumanization. But dehumanization involves this notion of being less than human, not simply other than human, less than human. Mm -hmm. And that involves hierarchical thinking. That is the idea that there are higher and lower forms of life. And so when we dehumanize others, not only do we treat them as having a non-human essence, but it's the essence of something which is lower down the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Now, if you read about this stuff, it's called the great chain of being. And the view that almost everyone takes this is that the idea of a hierarchy of nature extending from God at the top down to dirt at the bottom with every other kind of thing having a rank somewhere in between. And we human beings modestly placing ourselves just below the angels. Uh, was a model of the universe that originated in late antiquity, drawing on ideas from Plato and Aristotle. It lived its life. It faded out in late 18th century, early 19th century. I think that's utterly false. Mm-hmm. It's false, I think, for two reasons. One is that th- the idea of a natural hierarchy is much more widespread than Europe or civilizations touched by Europe. So in pre-conquest Latin America, we have this, this notion. Everywhere we have this notion of higher and lower. And also it lives on in our own heads. I mean, you know, if you ask someone, well, aren't you, don't you feel bad about swatting that mosquito? Well, the response is it's only a mosquito, right? It's, it's killable. Uh, whereas other things aren't killable. So there's kind of a, a, a hierarchy of moral obligation when we look at the world in this sort of way. So these two things interact. Now, to get to the point that I wanted to get to, in my original formulation of dehumanization in my book, Less Than Human, I said, well, when we dehumanize others, what happens is we attribute the the essence of a non-human, of, of a subhuman, a creature that we regard subhuman, because biologically that Darwin 
should have tried. After Darwin, we should have gotten rid of the great chain of being that had stuck around. Uh, and that's all there is to it. But that isn't all there is to it. As I said a little while ago, the complication is we can't shake our perception of humanness while we're regarding the other as subhuman. And if you actually look at the most toxic forms of dehumanization, what you find it's these individuals are not simply regarded as rats or lice or, or wolves. They're very, very, very often described as monsters, as fiends, as demons. Now, those don't have any position on the great chain of being, right? A monster isn't like a rat. So how do we understand that? Well, I think that's a function of these dual representations of the dehumanized other. So when the Nazis considered Jews, when they described them as subhumans, creatures akin to rats, it wasn't simply rats. It was rat people. <laughs> they were rat people. There's a combination of vermin and human being. Mm-hmm. And that's what turns people into monsters. Yeah. And I mean, of course, you're trying to evoke certain perception. I mean, rats are threatening. They're, they're, yeah, you don't want to be around them you, you, and you want to get rid of them and it's considered fine to do so. So, um, you know, it makes sense as a tool of propaganda. Um, I mean, I guess if I think of the fusion of a rat and a person, I don't think of a monster per se, but you're using, um, I mean, I guess when I think of monster, I mean, it is often used to, uh, you know, to put people in a category that deserves, uh, bad treatment. I mean, um, certain kinds of killers that we would, you might argue yes. for executing and yes. so on. That's he's, right. a, well, he's a monster. Yes, yes. Right. And, um, I mean, it, it, it's, uh. So, so I think I can make this more intuitive for okay. you. Right. So in this bit of my work, I draw on uh, the work of a philosopher named Noel Carroll. He does aesthetics. And one of the things he's really, really interested in is horror fiction. And one of the many questions he asks about horror fiction is what makes a monster? What are the specifications for a monster? Well, he calls it a horrific monster to designate it's, you know, these are the things that haunt horror fiction. And he argues, and I, I agree with him on this, that there are two characteristics. One characteristic is physical threat. So the monster has to be out, a malevolent being. It's, it's out to hurt you, to kill you, to harm you, something of that nature. But that doesn't distinguish monsters from, you know, angry grizzly bears or serial killers or any other of a number of dangerous beings. Mm-hmm. crucially, the monster has to be what he calls cognitively threatening. I use a different term. I use metaphysically threatening. But for the purposes of this conversation, let's stick with his terminology. Me- meaning that, formidable in terms of intellect? Is that what cognitive? No, no. no that's okay. why I don't like the term, okay, because okay. it suggests precisely that. Something that is cognitively threatening violates uh the natural categories that we place things in. So for instance, think of a werewolf. Mm-hmm. It's human and it's a wolf. So it transgresses these categories and that is disturbing. There's a literature on this, a psychological literature going back to the very early 20th century. Um, uh, so, um, I mean, the, terminology that's used in that literature is the uncanny. Monsters have to be uncanny, mm-hmm. right? They're neither this nor that. So they violate our conception of the natural order. Mm-hmm. So physically threatening and cognitively threatening in that sort of way. Now, when we dehumanize others, it usually begins with representing them as, physic- as physically threatening. Mm-hmm. The group, and it's very often the most vulnerable, the most marginalized group of people in a society. They're regarded as dangerous, predatory, essentially criminal, blah, 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 blah. 
when they're dehumanized, we try to think of them as subhuman creatures and yet can't shake the representation of them, our mental representation of them as human beings. Then we have the dimension of cognitive threat added to that. Right? So now think of the rat person. Okay. Right? It's human and it's not human and it's not half and half. It's like it's wholly human and wholly rat. It's it's an incoherent state of mind and it's dangerous. Okay. That's how they get turned into monsters. Okay. So I see what you mean. Now, now when I myself use the word monster here used, it's often, and I don't know whether this would have applied in, in, uh, in Germany, um, in, in the case, in the case of, uh, dehumanizing the Jews, but, um, I, I associated with evil, right? I mean, it's like Hannibal yes. Lecter is a monster, right? Yes. Yes. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like somebody who's incomprehensibly bad. And, and I think, see, I guess the reason I hesitated about Germany, I think often when there's a whole group we're persecuting, it's not quite like they're incomprehensibly bad, but it seems to me sometimes monster is used that way. Like, a uh you know a serial killer like Ted Bundy is a monster Hannibal Lecter is a monster and in those cases at least it's associated somewhat with a with the you know uh a, a common meaning of evil I think right yeah no but that that certainly applied to Jews in Nazi Germany Jews okay. were the enemy of everything good mm-hmm. and they are bad to the bone and they are essentially criminal that is irredeemably criminal. Okay. That's part of their nature. It's part of their essence. Now, do you, do, does evil, um, how do you feel about evil as a, uh, I mean, first of all, there's the metaphysical question. Does it exist? And wh- what do you mean by it if you think it exists? Do you think it exists? And, and, and if so, what do you mean by it? What do you no, mean by I don't it think, I don't think that it exists. I, I think that, um, evil is the extreme. When we say something is evil, it's the extreme of moral disapproval. I don't think there's any property that any anything has, which mm-hmm. that's property of evil. And and I guess originally, or, or it is often meant almost literally a force that inhabits some beings, right? I mean, that, is that's that the right, common yes. sense meaning? I think so. I think yeah. that's close to the common sense meaning, and I, I think that produces nothing but trouble. Okay. It prevents us from understanding, you know, the causes of, Certain kinds of human behavior, which mm-hmm. which are terrible. And as long as we're talking about evil, do you have a view on uh, Hannah Arendt? And uh, I mean, she's famously associated with the, the phrase "the banality of evil." I'm not sure. I'm sure what she meant by that, but yeah. So uh, I think, with regard to Hannah Arendt, I mean her 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 book was very important. But it's the book. Two, now this was on Eichmann, or yes, the Eich, uh-huh. Eichmann in Jerusalem, uh-huh. right? So uh, Bettina Stagneth, who is a later scholar, has written the definitive book on Eichmann, and she really shows that Eichmann was performing in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. He was I trying think- to present himself in a certain sort of way. Uh, and this and, is a trial that Arendt covered. That's kind of right. Covered as a journalist. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So a lot of material on Eichmann has come out since Arendt's book because he, you know, he was there in, uh, in South America and he was interviewed by a, a Dutch journalist. And there are, there's just lots and lots and lots of, um, mm. of material, both his written material and the recorded material. So scholarship has really moved on since then. I don't like the term banality of, of evil, whatever she meant by it. I don't like it. Because Eichmann was a committed exterminationist anti-Semite. Mm-hmm. There's just no doubt about that. And, you know, when we say banality of evil, the idea is to see him, we tend to see him, I, again, I don't know exactly what she meant, as just a mindless bureaucrat doing yeah. his job. That was, that was not Showing up Eichmann. for work, it happens to involve extermination. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess so so uh finally I guess we should uh focus on one word in uh in your subtitle the word resist. So the t- the t- uh the title of the book is on inhumanity dehumanization and how to resist it. 
Yeah. That's what I want to know. How do, how do we resist? <laughs> there, there are a couple of different fronts and partially depends on who that tricky word we refers to. So I'm, um, I have basically a, an American or maybe a little bit broader, a North American audience in mind writing this book. One part of how to resist it applies to everyone. I think we need to understand our own propensity for it. That is, we need to understand ourselves. Human beings just have a vulnerability based on our psychological dispositions to fall prey to certain kinds of powerful political rhetoric. And I'm using the word political in a very broad sense. It could be from a religious authority. It could be from people in our community, our local you know, pastor or whomever. But there's certain things that we're suckers for. Now, there's a bit in the book, actually, going into a little bit more detail about how some of the most effective forms of propaganda work. To put it in a formula to simplify somewhat what I say there, the propagandist, the skilled propagandist, first gets us to feel vulnerable and then gives us a magical solution to our vulnerability, mm-hmm. offers us salvation. And if we're feeling sufficiently vulnerable, as I think deep down we all do as human beings, the, the politician simply plays on it, makes it more salient, uh, then we very readily swallow the magical solution. And that magical solution very often involves they're out to get us, they're dangerous, they're less than human. We need to protect ourselves. And that's how genocides start, right? We got to protect ourselves Mm -hmm. from these, these evil ones. Okay. So we need to understand that we're all capable of this. We need to understand something about what it is about us that makes us capable of this, what our vulnerabilities are psychologically. And that allows us to remain vigilant, at least gives us a fighting chance. Mm -hmm. The other is external. We need to, you know, we need to be vigilant in making sure that freedom of speech is developed, is, uh, is supported. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a two-edged sword, right? <laughs> because the dehumanizers take advantage of this. This was a Nazi, you know, the Nazis were always complaining in the early days that, that, that the authorities were clamping down on freedom of speech when they, uh, had problems with mm. what Hitler was doing. Uh, we need a free press. We need to take action against incipient humanization, and that's racism and um, the essentializing of, of social groups. So it's both inward and outward. I think understanding history is very, very important in this. Because if you understand history properly, you cannot sustain the illusion that we, whoever we happen to be, are incapable of such horrors. Um, that's why when I when I teach this topic, my exhibit A uh, consists of, of descriptions of spectacle lynchings in the United States. You know, these lynchings where thousands of people attended Mm-hmm. Uh, the victim was tortured and then burnt alive, you know, tortured for hour upon hour in the most unbelievably gruesome. And they way. always believed the victim had done something horrible. Oh, yes. And they deserved it. And if you look at what the newspaper said about the victims, the Southern press, they're monsters, they're mm-hmm. predatory apes, they're fiends, they're demons. Um, and just by the way, these burnings were uh, often called barbecues. Whites called them barbecues, which, well, speaks for itself, doesn't it? Yeah. And these were um, carried out outside of the avenues of the law and yet just kind of publicized in advance and, and law authorities oh, yeah. were fine with it. Yeah. In the 20th century, they were advertised on radio sometimes. Mm-hmm. Railway companies laid on special excursion trains to transport people to the lynchings. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bars were closed. The schools were closed. Uh, whole families attended these things. It, 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 it's really like something out of a 
like out of a horror film. It's yeah. really disturbing stuff. Yeah. Now, I'm if, if you take in that we did that, yeah, then it kind of deflates American exceptionalism, that sort of illusion, which is terribly easy for Americans to maintain precisely because we didn't lose the war. Yeah, and I think the we is important. I mean, I, I'm I'm a firm believer uh, in the idea that, uh, as hard to imagine as it is, we all could, if we felt sufficiently threatened and were sufficiently convinced of A, B, and C, uh, wind up doing things we don't believe we can do. Yep. Um. Okay. So, well, well, thank you. Anything else you want to say about the book aside from buy it? Uh. Uh, it's officially published in two days from well, we won't, the time we of this recording. So it'll, it'll it be out. Be yeah. We would never do that to you. We'd make sure it's, it's, it's for sale before we. Yeah. It will this. be for sale. Buy it. Buy multiple copies. Okay. And, it. and, uh, is there any place where people can find, uh, other work of yours? I mean, anything, a Twitter, a Twitter handle you want to add? Yeah. They can or? go, they can go to my website, which badly need, needs updating now, but will be updated by the time this is broadcast. So that's okay. davidlivingstonsmith.com. Livingston has an E on the end. Correct. As if it were pronounced Livingstone, though it's not. Yes. David and Smith are spelled as you might imagine. Okay, so the book is On Humanity, Dehumanization, and How to Resist It. On uh, Inhumanity. Uh, oh, did I say On Humanity? Yes. A lot of people do that. That can, be your, next, that can be your next book. I don't do sweetness and light. <laughs> well, I don't know. You, you say you can tell us how to resist it. That's, yeah. you know. Yeah. That's, we have to accept some darkness in ourselves in order to, to do that. To get to resistance. Okay. Well, thank you so much, David, and good luck thank with the book. Thank you so much, Bob.